Hello, and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Jared Lumen, the soil health lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. In the upper Midwest, winter is by far the most expensive time to own a cow. However, there are a variety of different options and ways that producers have found to reduce the cost of wintering cows and even make it an enjoyable time of year. We're really fortunate here at SFA to have several staff members who farm and have a wide range of experience to share on this topic. So today, I'll be discussing, as well as being joined by four of our SFA staff members, Doug Voss, Tyler Carlson, Angie Walters, and Kent Solberg, who all raise cattle, uh, and we'll discuss this topic and how we address this challenge. Hopefully you can come away from this discussion with at least one idea that you can apply on your own farm. With five of us, I think a good place to start would probably be introductions. So we'll start with that, an introduction of ourselves, our farm, and our role at SFA. As I mentioned, I am the soil health lead for the Sustainable Farming Association, but I also farm with my dad, John, and my wife, Valerie, in Goodhue, Minnesota. We raise registered Red Angus beef cows and market seed stock, as well as grass-finished beef to customers in the Twin Cities. Doug, why don't you go ahead and go next? Hello, Jared. I'm Doug Voss. I'm the grazing lead for SFA, and we farm in Stearns County, um, third-generation family farm in which we are, are pasture-based, perennial-based. We raise grass-fed beef. We have a small micro-dairy and a custom grazing enterprise. Uh, awesome. Thanks, Doug. Uh, Tyler, tell us about your farm. Hey, everyone. Yeah, I'm Tyler Carlson. I'm the Silva Pasture and Agroforestry Lead for SFA. I farm in Todd County with my wife. We raise uh, grass-fed beef and uh, grass-fed and grass-finished lamb um, on a largely perennial uh, pasture and silvo pasture-based uh, operation here. Awesome. Thank you, Tyler. Angie, tell us about uh, what you do. Hi, my name is Angie Walter, and I am the Central Minnesota Education Coordinator for the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship Program. Uh, my husband and I and our two children, we milk 100 cross-bred cows in Westport, Minnesota. We ship our milk to Organic Valley, and our cows are housed outside year-round. Awesome. And Kent, I'm excited to hear your experiences. You're probably the furthest north and have probably experienced some of the most uh, extreme of winter challenges. Uh, but share a little bit about your role uh, with SFA and your farm. Sure, Jared. Hi, everyone. Kent Solberg, Senior Technical Advisor, Sustainable Farming Association. My wife, Linda, and I have 100% grass-fed dairy uh, in Wadena County, Minnesota. Uh, if you climb a really tall tree, you can see the Arctic Circle from here, but not quite. So, um, yeah, we are up in the North Country, and I can say after doing it for 20 years, our cows are outside all the time. Uh, it works quite well. Awesome. Well, as we all know, um, and Kent, maybe more than others, winter brings unique challenges. Uh, but every farm and every winter is going to be pretty different. And so I'm curious, Doug, uh, if you would share some of the challenges you see in your beef operation. And then Angie, following him, uh, share a little bit of the unique challenges to dairy that you experience. Sure. When I look at uh, the winter, I always the first thought I have is I hope for the best, but I plan for the worst. And um, I look at what we've got for feed supply on hand if I have to bring in anything uh, because we do, even though we have a, a feedlot facility, we don't keep any cattle in the yards or in the sheds at all. 
uh, during the season. The only time there's an exception to that is in the spring when things start to thaw out, but we're looking at the winter right now. And so, um, you know, that's how I kind of look at things. I'm looking at shelter belts and those types of things where cattle are going to have access to, because even though they don't have access to a shed, um, they do have to get out of the wind. And um, so these are some of the things along with where I'm going to strategically be feeding those cattle and having backup plans. Uh, so this is the big picture as I look forward towards the winter, uh, including, uh, and the other thing I didn't mention is, is of course water supply. And um, I guess that sometimes we depend on snow, but otherwise uh, we've developed a couple of water uh, supplies on the farm by tapping into some springs and wells that uh, are like artesian wells from um, our river bottom land, which has got good shelter, it's in a valley. And uh, that way we always know at some point the cattle can uh, access the water they need as well. So we, um, we do a lot of planning at the beginning and we adjust a lot for cold weather needs as far as energy and the amount of feed that we have and evaluating the, the form of feed, whether it's uh, been a year that we've been able to put up dry hay that we can pre-place some, some bales uh, in the fall when it's nice and get prepared where all we have to do is go out and move a poly wire. Or if we had a really rainy season, uh, like we had a few years ago, a couple of years in a row, we weren't able to make any dry hay on the farm. And so we were making all baleage and that changed our approach a bit over winter as far as how we were gonna feed and where we were gonna feed. And um, then the other part of planning is, is how we want to leave the land the next spring that we're bale grazing on. So we've got a number of different things that we're trying to consider. And uh, again, it comes back to uh, hoping for the best, but still planning for the worst because we've got uh, certainly temperature and weather to consider in our environment. Awesome. Yeah, there's a whole lot of challenges. It sounds like you spend a lot of time preparing for all of those. Angie, do you have anything to add specifically kind of challenges that you see as a dairy farmer um, that require maybe an extra level of thought or planning? Yeah, I think with the dairy, you have to think about when your animals are going to be calving. We went from year-round calving to more of a seasonal calving because we had so many cows that would calve, and then they're outside in the cold and the wind, and that's when we were getting frozen teats. So we try now just to be done calving before December 10th, and so then the brutal of winter, we don't have that issue. Um, another thing would be that they have good dry bedding to lay down in. You want about um, a good foot thick that they can just lay down into so that keeps their udder dry as well. And then um, for the dairy, we look at the feed cost. You got these animals are milking, so it's going to cost more in feed and making sure you have good quality feed to get them through. Wow. Yeah. And, and feed costs, I, I can imagine for a dairy, especially being that they're, you know, trying to produce uh, through the winter is huge, but feed costs is, is large as a beef producer for us too. And, and when I look at how we can reduce feed costs in the winter as a beef producer, the, the best way I see it is uh, extending the grazing season. Every day that we're grazing an animal is one less day that we're feeding uh, some sort of feed that we had to plant and, and fertilize and harvest and, and haul and haul back out to the cows. And, and we also have to haul that manure afterwards. And so every day we're grazing, we're letting that cow do the work for us. And so I'm curious, Tyler, have you 
done anything on your farm, certain practices or, or anything that you're using to extend that grazing season and reduce the amount of time that you even have to deal with uh, winter feed costs? Yeah, our primary approach to trying to reduce the amount of stored feed that we're feeding in the winter is to stockpile perennial pasture. Um, I've done a little bit with annuals um, you know, over a few years, but ultimately decided that uh, perennial pasture was just, I think, a lower risk proposition for us. And um, at our scale, we don't have a lot of equipment and just, yeah, timing issues. So perennial pasture my goal is to stockpile as much perennial pasture as I can. Um, it also matters where that is on the farm. Um, if I have stockpiled pasture that is a half a mile from my winter water tank, that doesn't help me out too much because I'm not going to make my cows walk that far. Um, in particular, because we're doing grass, finished beef, um, those you know future market animals need to have abundant clean water and as much forage as possible that is of a high quality, high digestible nature. And so I, you can't push them as hard as you would uh, a dry beef cow. Um, so there's a lot to consider with that. And typically when I am grazing stockpiled pasture into late November, December, out towards January, um, I am still supplementing uh, dry hay with that pasture. And um, it works pretty well. Um, it really depends on the moisture you get in the fall. And uh, we don't really do a lot of supplemental fertilization, which is sometimes a recommended practice if you're trying to stockpile pasture. Um, one of the biggest issues that I see with it is um, excessive snowfall, particularly wet snow that can come starting in early November. We've had several years where we've had lots of stockpiled pasture that, you know, really dry matter and quality went down very quickly when you, know, you get a 12 inch heavy wet snow on top of it and it melts three days later. Um, the orchard grass and alfalfa and things don't stand up to that very well. Um, so there's a lot of risk with any sort of stockpiling um, of, of uh, particularly susceptible plants like that. And then there's the issue of just there being soft ground and needing to manage the potential for rains and yeah, heavy wet snows on um, cold unfrozen ground and the issue of mud. So those are things that we have to um, sort of plan for and it takes some time, you know, and practice figuring out the best way to, to manage through those, those eventual um, inevitable events. And how specifically are you stockpiling pasture? Is there some technique you're using to set aside grass? What grass are you choosing to stockpile and, and set aside for that fall or, or winter grazing to get to November and December is pretty impressive, at least compared to our area. Most folks are off by September, or early October. So I'm curious how you, how you do that. Well, I think, you know, first off, we're moving livestock every day. And so particularly later in the season, um, we're maximizing the amount of rest that any grazed plant is going to get. And typically I have enough ground that I can move off by, you know, anything that I'm grazing during early July through about mid-August. Most years I'll get enough moisture and enough regrowth on that that I can come back to graze that again after frost starting about mid-October. And I can typically find about 40 to 60 days of pasture there that'll get me out to, you know, usually early December, I've gotten out to January one, one year with minimal supplementation, but that was an ideal year 
and our numbers have changed. We have more livestock on the farm now than we did when we started. And um, so it's, we're getting more like, you know, if I can get to Thanksgiving, that's kind of a good target. I'd like to get a lot further. I know we could with other approaches to minimizing stockpile or minimizing winter feed. But yeah, so primarily I'm looking to get off of the areas that are near my winter watering facilities. You know, my plan is to get off of those and have those grazed, but with, you know, um, keep those plants healthy so that they respond well to good, good fall growing conditions by August 15th. And that typically works pretty well. Um, that's just, you know, I guess that's sort of the approach that we've come to for our farm. Um, and I think that's a good, that's a good practice. Anything from early July to mid August can be stockpiled and be, you know, quite a bit of tonnage and good quality for fall grazing. Thank you. And, and Kent, uh, on your farm or the farms that you visited, are there other creative ways you've seen to extend that grazing season and push back the time that you have to start feeding, uh, you know, actually bringing in importing feed and, and doing all the work that it goes along with that? Yeah, um, our experience has been a lot like Tyler's. We're, we're about an hour north, 40 minutes, 45 minutes north of Tyler here. And, you know, typically we can run stockpile into November. The last two years, uh, it's been around the middle of November. We were shut down last year with a 10-inch heavy wet snow that flattened and buried everything. But then it melted after Thanksgiving, and we were able to go back out and utilize that forage. And uh, I, I just want to comment on that a bit, Jared, because a lot of producers, you know, will hear, you know, Tyler and my experience and go, well, why would I bother to stockpile if it could get buried in the snowbank, you know, uh, by the middle of November. And uh, I guess I would suggest that it's still worth doing because those are the paddocks, those are the portions of your pasture that you're going to start grazing on the next spring. So it's not truly completely lost, if you will. Yes, you may have lost some grazing days that fall, but those can be opportunities to start earlier the next spring. And so um, I, I just offer that as uh, in case people get concerned about, you know, the realities of living in the North Country. Yes, it might snow early enough and it might get buried, but I wouldn't consider it a loss. So uh, you, we've also grazed. Go ahead. I was, you talk about that grazing in the, the, that in the spring. That really provides kind of a perfect ration in the spring, too, where that grass is lush yes. and high protein, washy, you know, watery grass. Yes. If you get a little bit of that fall stockpile with it, that really provides a great ration to get that cow transitioned onto spring forage. Yes, absolutely right. Great opportunity to balance that ration there. So um, we have also grazed annuals in the past. We're, we're kind of opportunistic grazers. We do things as opportunity arises. Um, so we've grazed a variety of annuals well, well into, the, into the fall and winter. Um, I am working with producers. Uh, one producer last year in West Central Minnesota grazed uh, annuals or cover crops, as a lot of people call them, into March, the following March. Um, I've got a producer not far from Tyler that I've worked with for a number of years, excuse me, who routinely graze annuals into January and even early February. Uh, I've got producers I've worked with in Carleton County, which is just southwest of Duluth, that are typically grazing seeded annuals to around the first of the year. Um, and I've got other producers north and west of myself, even further north, 
who are grazing till around the first of the year and even into early January. And so the seeded annuals can easily add one to two months of extra grazing out there. And like you said earlier, Jared, you know, we're, we're taking care of two chores with one task here. We're, we're spreading manure if we're intentional about how we do this and, and do it in a pattern and do it with a purpose, like Doug said. Um, we can take care of multiple chores here. And so there's, there's a number of ways that this can be uh, uh, beneficial to the bottom line. We've also green, gleaned uh, corn residue, uh, corn stock residue after it was combined. Um, and oftentimes for us, these areas are on neighboring farms. It's a, it's a ways away. And one of the things we've had great success with uh, in providing water uh, on these more distant sites is setting up a pipeline. This has been above ground, uh, going to a tank and setting it up as a continuous flow system. It's a partial flow system, but it's a continuous flow. And it's an idea I got from Canadians and I figure if they can do it in Canada, we can do it in Minnesota. Uh, and, and there's guys in Canada who are doing this all throughout the winter in temperatures that are routinely hitting 30 and 40 below zero. But essentially you just jimmy uh, the float on uh, a float valve partially open. Uh, you need an overflow, a way to overflow that tank for that overflow. So that flow goes away from the cattle, preferably downhill and away. Um, cattle don't do well on ice as we all know, and they don't come equipped with skates and they don't like to play hockey. So uh, we, we want to keep that ice away from them, but you know, we've done it out, uh, a quarter mile away, uh, from, or better. So they don't have to walk so far. Uh, and it works very, very well until the power goes off. And most of us don't experience a lot of that, but it can be a way to do it. And it works quite well. Um, stockpiling, you know, really if we're doing a good job of our grazing management, we're always stockpiling grass. We're always building stockpile if we have adequate rest. And so it's thinking about where we want to utilize that stockpile like Tyler was talking about come October, November, December. Really in, in Minnesota here, for a lot of us, we're already consuming stockpile the latter part of August because we're not probably going to be coming back on those pastures later. So the stockpile really is getting us from the latter part of August. And for folks like Tyler and myself, you know, we're, we're grazing that stockpile routinely up until middle of November around Thanksgiving weekend. That's our target too on stockpile perennials is around Thanksgiving weekend. One of the things you have to watch like uh, Tyler talked about and others have talked about is um, we're going to lose some energy as we in those forages as we start get a, getting a killing frost. We do the forage analysis on it. And we see that it drops, and so feeding some, supplementing that with some quality baleage. If you're doing a grass-fed product, or if you're not uh, and you've got access to silage or some grain, supplementing to keep those energy levels up. Protein can stay quite good uh, well into December, but the energy levels begin to drop, and we need to watch that. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize <laughs> there's a lot of good wisdom there, but I didn't realize you could put an above ground water line and, and even with the continuous flow that that would, that would not freeze. So that's, that's pretty impressive. And that really opens up a lot of doors for winter grazing. Um, even if we can find a way to graze well into winter, I know eventually if, for example, on our farm last winter, we worked with a no-till farmer, uh, to graze, uh, 
crop residue, corn stalks, and, to, and we grazed well into winter. But at some point, there was a time where we get to the mud season. And he was worried that we would ruin his land and, and you know, kind of rip that up. And so we recognized at least at this point that at some point, we're probably going to have to start feeding hay. And there's a couple of different options to do that. You can feed it in a yard, feed it in a shed. Um, but then there's also bale grazing. And that is, in my opinion, one of the best ways to do it. And, and Doug, I know you mentioned you have all this feedlot space, all this cement, this bunk space, yet you choose to bale graze. Why did you do that? And how are you doing that? Ooh, so that, that's, a, that's a big question because, um, well, first of all, um, when I learned of the associated losses and that we incurred when we have those animals in a feedlot and leaving their entrails uh, behind, uh, there's a great study done in Canada a number of years ago, and, uh, and I'm sure there have been other studies uh, similar to this, but when we figured how much, you know, we were at least losing half the nitrogen, for example, and, um, and in some cases, almost all the, the potassium and, and a big good portion of the phosphorus even, and looked at how much infrastructure it took. And as far as looking broad scale and landscape, because a lot of farms don't think they can farm without a feedlot. And, um, and that's just really not true. I don't feel, uh, depending on the class of livestock you're dealing with, but, um, but the biggest thing I think, even aside from, from the manure itself was the urine. Uh, we're volatizing all that, that um, you know, the benefits of the urine every time they're going in a feedlot or in a barn. And even in frozen ground, that will go down a couple inches. And so one of the things that I had noticed, even getting livestock on land that hadn't seen livestock for well, decades, uh, the first response I always saw was the urine patches in those fields and those paddocks. And so that told me that that was a significant portion of the nutrients that we were losing. Uh, so when I got to that point and I looked at how much time and energy we were spending, because we were not only trying to... Um, you know, minimize labor because of the costs. And like, you know, you said, Jared, that's the large portion of our expenses for that year for those livestock. And then we were also composting a lot of that material and trying to get adequate levels of starting ingredients so that we had a, you know, an optimum compost in the end and how much energy that took as well and the bedding costs. So, uh, you know, all those things considered got, got us to look at bale grazing initially. And we, you know, we started out small. I, I was really deliberate to make sure the ground was frozen the first time I did it with feeders. And from that point, we, we've gone away from feeders altogether when we go to bale grazing. Uh, the, one of the biggest questions that I have for like a week's worth of grazing when I'm looking at it is whether I'm going to be pre-placing uh, bales whole or if I'm going to unroll them. And so when I look at that, I'm trying to determine how much uh, fertility I want to leave in that area and how much residue from the bales themselves I want to leave behind in relation to the, uh, you know, to the fertility that comes off the back end of the animals. And so I'll, I'll leave more residue in those places where I pre-place bales. And it's also going to be considered on what's going on in the farm. If we have, uh, if we can hang around or if we've got more time to spend uh, during a given week, um, you know, we'll take that into consideration. If we, we have other things we kind of need to abbreviate chores, if we can, we'll pre-place bales a week in advance. And uh, sometimes we'll move a poly wire to uh, separate them. And sometimes we won't. We'll just give them a whole week or even a couple weeks at a time, depending on the weather conditions and, and uh, everything considered there. So uh, what, one thing I really do like a lot is 
is unrolling bales or spreading out those bales. And we don't do that with a fancy shopper or, or distributor. I just simply use the loader. And um, like I said, a couple of years back, there were about three years there. We didn't get the opportunity to make any dry hay because of the rains that came and, and we had a good supply of hay and, and we wrapped it all in baleage. And so, yeah. I know there are some farmers, and I think Kent, you're one of them as well, that, that'll feed a number of days in baleage. We just found in our case that we could get by with far less forage if we fed daily or every other day, uh, if supplies were kind of tight. And so I, I would go out and I would take a bale and um, not unrolling it so much because if it does get real cold, some of the outside edges of those baleage bales can get kind of stiff. So what we do is we just simply lay the the bale out in the field and then we'll take the top take the tine about three four inches from the top and and stick that bale and peel it up uh just like somebody had misplaced a, a bale spear in a bale and they were trying to move it and it all fell apart right i mean a lot of people have done that by accident well we do it for on purpose and that's the way we distribute so we have enough bunk space for all our livestock for the day so for example with 120 head we can oftentimes get by with a couple baleage bales and we um you know distribute them where we want that fertility. So when we're grazing during the, you know, the growing season, we will be always looking and observing at areas that we feel need a little extra help in the areas that we're allowed to bale graze because of uh, shelter and that type of thing during the winter. And I think that's really key as far as really using those resources to, you know, to jumpstart maybe some, some challenging areas on your farm. I know that we've, we've, you know, increased production four to five times in one season just from gale grazing in the fall till the next spring and uh, you know there are places that we kind of signed off we thought well you know this soil just isn't productive or uh, you know this is just what we get but when we introduced bale grazing it was a game changer and so not only are we I feel utilizing our resources better uh, we're reducing labor and the peace of mind that we have. And, um, and I think the, the last thing, which could be as important as anything, is I feel we're improving our uh, health of our livestock and we're affecting epigenetics in those livestock by not coddling them. We're not providing the bed and breakfast. We're also not calving in the winter. We had a little conversation before about that as far as, you know, there's appropriate times and places for every operation to, to calve and uh, not every operation should be calving in the winter. And we've moved away from that one. We were able to get by with a little bit lower quality feed in the winter. And um, in some cases, the requirements because of temperature, it, it just gave lost a lot more flexibility in what we were able to do with those animals. And um, another thing when we're talking about, you know, stockpiling, I'll, I want to mention as well is that uh, there seems to be an efficiency change in livestock when they go from grazing stockpile to feeding stored hay. Um, I'm not sure if anybody has a direct number to that, but I know we've noticed that on our own farm, uh, we've often grazed uh, into January with stockpile. We've we've started supplementing a small amount of baleage, and and that's a thing too. You know, you don't have to be feeding a whole bale at a time. If you want to go out and supplement, it might be uh, you know just enough to carry them through, and then they can still go back and and uh, maintain gut fill with some other stockpiled forages but uh there does seem to be an efficiency change they they seem to be less efficient when we're feeding stored feed in a lot of situations so all these things considered you know uh, yeah and things change over time but to be mindful of of that approach when we're looking at uh, not only planning out but then also uh adjusting for cold weather and feeding more 
because when we're cattle aren't all in a shed and they don't have the shelter or the warmth maybe that some operations have, we have to adjust for our energy needs. And oftentimes that'll mean feeding a lot more hay. Um, but that's also more opportunity to distribute those nutrients over our bale grazing areas. Awesome. Well, thank you. That, you know, it, it really is an awesome resource and I can echo the, the response and witnessing what an amazing difference it's made from year, the year prior to the year after bale grazing uh, on our farm. We've seen some pretty incredible results. Angie, I'm, I'm curious as a dairy farmer, you mentioned in your introduction that you outwinter 100%, you know, all winter long with your cattle. What's the process of you doing that? How are you feeding them? Where are you feeding them? Is this something that you, you are, or you have seen uh, on some farmers being employed with dairy cattle as well? Yeah, so I think it's important with the dairy, especially for the cow side, um, would be proximity to the barn. Um, so our setup is we have um, some drive-by feeding, and that's where the cows are fed. And then they have an area right next to there where we can bed. So they're only walking um, probably about 50 feet at any time. And then to the barn, it's probably about 100 feet. So. Um, they're not walking great distances and the areas that they're walking and they don't have to walk through deep snow. Most dairy cows will not walk through deep snow. Um, heifers are another story. Our heifers we can have out on a pasture, bale grazing and that kind of stuff. But the dairy cows that are milking need to be close to the barn. Yeah, I know we're, I get spoiled sometimes with my beef cows that I can bring them out, you know, anywhere in the back of the farm, as long as I can get water to them, or a lot of times they won't even need to get water. Um, they'll eat snow. Um, but that, that bringing them home every day to milk, that's a, definitely an additional challenge that I'm spoiled not having to deal with. Jared, um, if I could make another comment on the yes. dairy. Angie, yeah, please. Angie kind of alluded to this, but just to illustrate it a bit further. Um, you know, both both Walters and herself, our cows are out all the time. Uh, University of Minnesota Morris dairy herd, the cows are out all the time. And we can do that. Now, does that mean every dairy farmer that wants to outwinter needs to kick all their cows out of their barn? And no, that's not what we're saying here. Um, for a lot of dairies, just outwintering those heifers, those bigger heifers, can go a long, long, long way to help keep costs down to help use those animals as a tool uh, to build uh, soil biology, like Doug was talking about, can be extremely valuable. And even to build animal health and, and to build a stronger set of epigenetics, as Doug was talking about in our herd. So this doesn't have to be all or nothing. Uh, I see lots of hybrid options out there uh, where the cows are managed one way and the heifers are managed another way uh, when it comes to outwintering. And, it can work extremely well. It can really help uh, keep costs down, help the bottom line, and, and just the, the overall productivity and profitability of that farm. Great points. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Kent. Uh, Tyler, I know you calve a little bit later in the spring in that May and June, and Doug already alluded to this a little bit, but can you share why you chose to calve May and June? I mean, so many people, I hear all the time, well, you know, we sell calves and we're paid by the pound. So if we calve in January and we sell them in October, we can have a whole lot more pounds to sell. And that makes sense in theory, but there's more to it than that. And why did you choose to move your calving back to May, uh, May and June? Well, first, um, we started farming in 2012 and there's no barn. So we did not have any facilities to begin with. And everything that I saw, you know, and looked into on 
you know, beef profitability and the issues with profit in the beef industry was pushing me towards um, outwintering. I mean, that was that from the get go, I knew that was where we wanted to go. And obviously, it's pretty obviously, you know, even as someone not farming, calving outside with little shelter in February is not a great idea. Um, and so we started in March, late March and April was our target calving season. And um, that worked fine, except for when it didn't, because March and April can look like July and it can look like February. Um, when we're calving in mid-May, we're out on full grass and the calves are being born on fresh grass, lots of lush, clean ground. They're being moved every day to fresh ground. So there's very little, you know, disease vector, you know, uh, risk. Um, when we were calving in April, we had some of that. We had issues with mud and just, you know, it's the rainy season and soft ground. Um, moving back to May was, was pretty ideal. And, fr and frankly, our calves going into the winter, you, you know, two months younger than when we started, were, were honestly the same size. So we've been doing that for three years now, and I've, I have had zero health issues um, with, with anything related to weather. I've had 100% calving crop until this year. We lost a couple this year, but to, you know, just random things not related to weather. So it's been really great, and I don't think I would go back. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's incredible even that you've seen the weight stay the same. That's, that's really impressive. And I know on our farm, in addition to just the ease of calving and the ease of the whole, you know, you know, process of doing that and, and the health benefits. Additionally, it kind of aids with that winter bale grazing or winter, uh, winter grazing of corn stubble or dormant grasses. I know Kent talked about the quality of forages dropping off significantly after a frost, especially if you're grazing some warm season annuals or corn, corn residue. And if you have a cow calving in January, that's when they have their highest nutrient requirement. And so when you're calving in January, you're going to have to supplement with some pretty high quality feed that oftentimes is expensive. Whereas if you calve in May and June, where we naturally have an abundance of high quality feed, oftentimes more than we can manage anyway, uh, you're able to uh, graze them on that poor quality feed through the winter. And I know that's a huge benefit that we've seen to grazing where we calved when we once calved in March and April. Uh, we had to start feeding higher quality feed sooner into the winter and uh, we were no longer able to extend our grazing season on those dormant forages. Even if we had the forage available and the winter allowed it, our animals nutrition requirements uh, stopped us from being able to do that. And so that's a huge benefit. And kind of along with this whole topic of getting through winter cheaply, uh, a lot of times that comes down to feeding poorer quality feeds. and. Uh, a factor that in, is involved with feeding poor quality feeds is, is a genetic of an or is the genetics of the animal and an animal that is able to handle that quality of feed. And so I know Tyler, you have uh, maybe a less common breed of animal, and, and on our farm we've bred our animals to survive and, and adapt well to low quality feeds. Whereas if you took the standard 1,600 pound cow out of the, the sales barn and you put them out on corn stalks in far, February or March, uh, they may not do so well. Have you seen any advantages to the type of genetics that you raise on your farm uh, when you're doing some of that, that feeding through winter? Yeah, I mean, we, we raise low-line Angus or three-quarter low-line, um, one-quarter, you know, standard traditional Angus. And um, so they're around a 1,000-pound cow. Um, but, um, you know, the smaller cow just has 
lower maintenance requirements. You know, that's kind of what it all comes down to. And um, it's the same reason, the, the reason we've chosen them, not chose them, you know, chose that breed or that size animal is not even because, you know, the low maintenance makes them easy keepers in the winter. It's that a smaller cow tends to mature quicker. And the quicker they mature, the quicker they put fat down. And we need every advantage that we can get in grass finishing because we cannot rely on stored energy, you know, uh, grains and things. So, you know, that, that's just sort of an added benefit that they also happen to be easier keeping in the winter for that reason. Um, but yeah, they, in the first winter, we leave our, we leave our calves on the cow. We, we, we self wean at about 11 months. You know, I, I, I pull the calves off at about 11, 11 and a half months before the cows calve again. And um, our cows typically gain weight through the winter carrying their calf on moderate quality feed. Yeah. So a benefit of those smaller frame cattle is, is, you know, first of all, like you talk about the advantages that go along with your grass finishing, but I know a lot of people may think, you know, I can't market an animal. If I don't have that grass finished market, I can't market that animal at a sales barn and I'll, I'll get discounted on that. And that's where, you know, on our farm, we raise registered Red Angus cattle and our cattle are much smaller. They're more moderate framed, but they still have the ability to produce a, a marketable calf at a sales barn, you know, around that we shoot for around that 1200 pound cow that really thrives on low quality feed all through the winter yet still produces a marketable calf in a commodity market and so if something you're worried about is you know having a low input animal that can still provide a marketable calf you know it's not one or the other you can have both um here there's there's more interest every year it seems like in more moderate frame cattle now i think the pendulum seems to be swinging back the other direction everything was you know bigger 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 for so many years and uh, i think across the board just on a lot of commercial herds the interest is in moderate frame cattle yeah yeah i mean it, wintering is is one advantage but when you talk about summer grazing it, you know we i talked a little bit about how that pounds of beef is what we sell but at the end of the day with those bigger cows they're eating more grass as well and you end up selling less pounds total per acre with those larger animals whereas with a smaller animal or more moderate frame animal you can oftentimes produce more pounds per acre in even if it is less per cow. And so I'm excited to see the potential of that, that pendulum swinging back towards a moderate frame cow like you talk about. But moving on to dairy specific challenges, and this is where I'll have to yield to uh, Angie, Kent, and Doug, where you guys have some dairy grazing or dairy experience. You know, what else could you add to the conversation that has to be, that the dairy farmer listening wants to hear or needs to hear? Um, that we maybe didn't address so far. And I'll start with Angie. I know you have worked with, you know, I don't even know, tens or dozens of farmers uh, through the dairy grazing apprenticeship, as well as your experience on your own dairy. What, what would you say we, we would uh, need to address to talk to those farmers? Um, in my opinion, I think we've covered most of it. It um, comes down to just basically having good wind protection, clean, dry bedding, and quality feed. Um, with access to the barn um, and then looking at your calving window you know when you're going to calve try not to calve during the coldest month of the year and um, like Kent touched on though I mean dairy heifers that's another story they can be out on pasture and get access to water even once a day and they will be fine out on pasture so those are the main things I would say for dairy have you seen anybody uh, seasonally milking kind of, you know, that's an advantage of beef cows is that we can control the season of calving to, you know, a month, two months long and, and 
and control kind of where their nutrient requirements are through the year. Are there dairy farmers out there doing the same thing and milking for a certain season and allowing those cows to dry off when it comes to those poor quality feeds or, or anything like that? Yes, there are. There are more, more and more farmers looking at calving seasonally and um, therefore drying off for a period of the year for um, usually a couple months. So whether that be the end of summer, um, some are doing that because of heat issues and then um, otherwise in the winter, others are doing that through like December, January um, or January, February, the coldest months. And that is a possibility. Um, some of them are, instead of completely drying up, they're also doing like once a day milking, which is also a possibility. So Angie, could you talk a little bit about how that would affect um, income streams as far as some of the pricing with uh, some of the organic sales and uh, the, the, uh, the summer flush in the spring, how that affects your market price? Sure. Um, with, uh, I'm more familiar with organic and um, with organic, they have a seasonal, um, a seasonal price adjustment. So in the fall, uh, or like Organic Valley, for example, they pay an extra $3 premium through the fall winter months. And in the spring, it's actually a $2 deduct because so many people are calving in the spring. There's already a strong flush of milk. And, and they're looking for more milk in the fall and winter months. So as a result of that, I know we have switched our calving to more fall because of it. And we've seen animals just do better in general calving in the fall months than in the spring and going through the heat of summer with the bugs and everything else. So as far as, for, you know, I, I think as, most organic farmers consider that that's a huge premium. That's a $5 swing in market price. So it's pretty significant. Wow, something I had no idea about. Kent, do you have anything to add to the discussion on dairy? Yeah, um, even, on, even on conventional milk markets, uh, there's usually a market uptick in the fall for similar reasons. There's that spring, spring flush, even with uh, the regular commodity herds. And uh, I, I've heard field reps uh, encourage people who are thinking about, you know, changing things around a little bit and possibly even consider uh, seasonal milking is to focus on fall freshening and milking into the fall and winter months and taking that break when, like Angie said, when the heat and flies are really bad. Um, I'd, I'd like to give uh, just real quick here, just acknowledgement to some of the pioneers uh, in this stuff, Jared, um, doing this. Yeah. I learned about bale grazing 25 years ago from uh, some gentle, some farmers down in your neck of the woods, Jared, and it was Ralph Lenz, who's no longer with us, he's deceased, and Art Tickey, who was a dairy farmer. Ralph was a beef farmer and Art was a dairy farmer, and uh, they'd go on the winter with their little road show to conferences telling farmers that they should consider doing this, and and I jumped on it right away, and people like Dennis Johnson, who's now retired from University of Minnesota Morris, uh, jumped on it right away. And they've been doing it out at University of Minnesota Morris, outwintering their dairy herd uh, for over 20 years now, I think. And so I think it's important we acknowledge that this has been around for a long time. It's been in the dairy world for a long time. This is nothing super new. And these pioneers who have taught the rest of us uh, how to do this. Um, we're real leaders and, and I just greatly appreciate their willingness to step out and innovate. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's awesome. I know 
we're really fortunate. They say we're, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants. We have a lot of people who came before us doing some awesome things and some innovative practices that we're able to take advantage of. So we're awfully grateful for that. But Doug, my last kind of topic I want to discuss is something you're doing on your farm that really can, you know, if shifted this direction could take this whole conversation off the table. And that's just avoiding outwintering altogether by raising seasonal livestock. And I'm curious, you know, share what you're doing with your farm with dairy heifers and any other thoughts you might have on different species or different ways to reduce that need for wintering cattle altogether. Absolutely. Um, I guess I'll take it back just a little bit to even, you know, share why we considered doing what we're currently doing. And, and it was a realization a few years back here that, you know, we had, you know, the history of our farm, we've been certified organic since 99. So we had a done intentional things way back then to try to, uh, you know, consider the environment, the ecosystem, uh, provide good, clean, healthy food from our farm and not at the expense of the environment, uh, doing a lot of things that we thought were right. Uh, one of the things that we kept coming back to in organic production was the reliance on on tillage for weed control and you know even asking the questions why why do we have weeds to begin with anyway and so that brought us to the mindset that uh, I wanted to start restoring or, or renovating and improving regenerating if you like to use that term as quickly as possible on our farm and the only way we could do that was with livestock and it needed to happen very differently than what it had happened in the past. At, at one point, uh, 20 years, 20 some years ago, we were milking 300 cows on our farm and uh, and not in the freestyle barn. We had a swing parlor and all loose housing and feedlots and, and some pasture at the time, but uh, we needed to approach it differently. And we realized the animals had to be on the land and uh, managed appropriately in order to get to where we wanted to be. Uh, when I got to that point and that realization, uh, we looked at different options and you know, buying a large number of livestock to get to the numbers that I thought we needed to, to facilitate what we uh, were trying to accomplish. Uh, it just wasn't really in the cards. It didn't make sense. And then I learned about uh, Neil Dennis in Canada. And Neil is, is uh, one of those pioneers like Kenta talked about in my mind. Uh, you know, when I first learned of Neil Dennis, he was custom grazing 850 to 1,000 head in one group. Uh, for I, I think it was like 110 days a year and uh, you know there's even a YouTube video of one of the cattle drives that he's moving between farms uh, he had very few livestock of his own but he was very uh, instrumental in sharing his experiences and how he was able to uh, improve his farm over time just with deliberate use of livestock and uh, I really appreciated his stories and so it uh, it was a conversation. Uh, in fact, I think Kent maybe remembers the conversation I had with my first dairy that I custom grazed for, and I custom grazed for that farm yet today. I do. I remember uh, the day you met a, him. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that was a good day. Uh, there was a conversation about the idea of custom grazing. If anybody was interested, and I sat down at a table with this farmer, and he said, "Yeah," he said, "We're actually looking for more opportunities to take our dairy replacement heifers to other farms to have grazed," and so. Um, in our, our case, it is an organic farm and you have to understand if you're not familiar with organic dairy production, there is a requirement, a certain amount of your, uh, you know, dry matter for your livestock is supposed to come from grazing. So, um, yeah, we started out that year. It was a very significant year for us because, uh, we had some delays that year with getting fenced up. We were still doing some crop farming and it wasn't until probably July or 
or August that we were set up in order to take on some custom cattle. And the only reason it really worked out is because the farm in which we grazed for the first year had just gotten 10 inches of rain the day and a half before and their pastures were mud. And so, yeah, we brought them up to our sand, uh, sandy loam fields. And I also want to add that um, our pastures that I talk about are converted cropland acres uh, and some of which is irrigated. A lot of which is, is tiled. And uh, some people don't think you can do it financially. And I, I guess I would argue that point to a certain degree without getting into details today, but that's what we're doing. And um, so what, what it enables us to do is, is, you know, it gives us the flexibility. If we don't have the forage, we can't take on the animals. That's just something that we have to be able to work with the people that we graze for. But we, um, we take on animals when the grass is sufficient. If it's not, we delay the time that the animals come onto the farm. Uh, we manage them quite intensely on our farm. Uh, we're moving uh, a minimum of daily moves. Uh, I don't. Very, very seldom do we do we not do it, at least minimal moves, and and we'll move sometimes depending on the time of year, the situation, the conditions, the the condition of the livestock. Even uh, we'll move up a one group of animal up to five times a day. And, um, but we don't do that year round. And I don't want you to understand or think that we're, we're intensely moving every group of cattle that we have five times a day, every day. It's just not the case. Um, but that's a part of adaptive grazing and it's very specific and it's very resource, uh, goal minded approach is what we do when it comes to that. But we take on animals in the spring and, um, there's a different number of different ways you can have relationships between the grazer and the farmer in which they come from. It's not a one size fits all and it's about relationships yet. So um, I feel we have a good relationship. I also feel that the animals that we're grazing, uh, I do feel that uh, they leave the farm in excellent condition each fall. I also believe that we're having a positive effect on the epigenetics that I referenced to before. And uh, just to expand on that very briefly, you know, the, the old mindset of the genetics and the blueprint that you have is all on that blueprint and it's not environmental is, has been kind of put to rest in a lot of conversations. There is certainly effects on environment, uh, whether it's, you know, what's, you know, the environment which that animal's in and what that animal's eating, what it's, you know, the water source and all these things, how it's handled, the stockmanship. Uh, the environment in which the surrounds the pastures. Uh, we have active railways. We have four-lane highways that we're in the middle of. Um, all these things take into consideration. I can tell you the first year we had custom cattle, they were in perfectly where they belonged behind their single-strand poly wire in their internal fence. And every morning for five days straight, they were in the northwest corner of that field. And it was because some Harley guy came down to the stop sign and had to find every one of his gear in his Harley Davidson and it scared those animals each spring to the opposite of the pasture. But they adapted. And I feel that the animals are probably better for it in the end. But uh, for us, we're able to get to numbers where we're uh, you know, able to make it a, a viable enterprise on the farm. Uh, we enjoy it. Uh, we can do it as a family. And when it comes to fall, uh, we joke because we say summer camp's over and uh, the cattle have to go back to their respectable dairies. And uh, in a lot of cases, it's just in time for having uh, fall calving in some of these dairies so that they can uh, become members of the milking string. So this does not have to be exclusive to dairy by any stretch. Uh, it can happen for stock cows, it can happen for feeders, for beef. Um, I don't know of anybody, I'm sure, but I have no reason to believe it couldn't happen for other classes of, of livestock as well. Uh, I think in some cases, there are a lot of livestock producers that are, uh, quite frankly, tired 
And if they had a month or two off from tending their own animals, they could probably do a better job the rest of the season. And uh, I think some of those situations should be considered because we could be uh, getting livestock onto land that hasn't had livestock for a long time. And it would you know, be very much of an improvement on that landscape to have animal impact again. So um, I guess I'm just encouraging anybody to think about different ways that that might be a valuable uh, you know, consideration in their operation off or on. And uh, I think we could all benefit if we have some constructive conversations to explore those possibilities. You know, at SFA, we, we talk so frequently about the principles of soil health. And one of those principles is livestock integration, particularly in cropping systems. And this is just a continuation of what you were saying, Doug, that, you know, where are those opportunities we can get creative? And those animals could be on another farm for a month or two in the fall. And we could save that livestock producer the cost of some stored feed and maybe even some manure handling uh, cost out there. We can get some animal integration and livestock impact on some crop ground. Uh, you know, this is the beauty of seeded annuals. Uh, this is the beauty of even stockpile grazing on, on hay, hay ground that's struggling instead of taking last crop hay. It could be grazed in October or November, and then those animals could be shifted over like we've talked about earlier. And like in your situation, you don't necessarily have to own them. So uh, these can be mutual relation, mutually beneficial relationships between different producers. And if this is something a producer is interested in and you don't know where to begin, you don't know somebody who's got livestock, uh, you can work with the Cropland Grazing Exchange. It's like an online Craigslist uh, that you can put an ad out there and, and see if anybody's interested. Or again, talk to one of us here at SFA because um, uh, many of us have experience uh, doing things like this and we can help provide some guidance. That's a great, that's a great point, Kent. Like we are actually working and partnering with a local crop farmer who wanted to get that livestock integration on his farm, but didn't want to deal with the management, didn't want to deal with the fencing and the water. And so we paid him a rate um, to bring our cattle there. We took care of the fencing, we took care of the management and we grazed the crop residue and some cover crops on his farm. And so for crop farmers who either you know, want to get that integration, but don't want that extra responsibility, or maybe they're looking to take on more responsibility and maybe add kind of a second enterprise uh, or another enterprise to their operation that's a winter specific enterprise, they could look to work with farmers. Um, and then for those who want to maybe uh, continue that schedule of, of having winters with less work, um, kind of what Doug's talking about with seasonal livestock grazing of stocker cattle or dairy heifers could be a great fit. There's so many ways out there that we can utilize livestock and integrate them into our operations. And specifically on today's conversation, for those who have livestock and see winter as a huge obstacle, you know, how do we, how do we bring our costs down? How do we compete uh, with, with costs and our cattle? I hope that today you could have learned something or heard something um, and take something out of this discussion to apply on your farm that will help you to extend your grazing season or reduce your winter costs or reduce your winter labor to make it more enjoyable again. Um, you know, because that's a huge part of sustainability is enjoyment of what you do. No farm that is <laughs> no fun will be around for very long. Um, but thank you all so much for your, your time, your discussions, your experience. I really appreciate it. I'm grateful uh, that we at SFA are, you know, we're, we're really fortunate to have such a vast expanse of knowledge. 
Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture, done well, heals. For more resources or to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.